0: Amen. Thank you, worship team. I would invite now all of our kids ages 3 through 8. Kids ages 3 through 8. No preteen this week. It's it's the first Sunday of the month. Uh, But ages kids 3 through 8, you're dismissed to go with Miss Allie into the back. Those of you who are staying with us, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Samuel Second Samuel's. We continue on in our series this morning. We'll be looking at chapter six. So, if you're with us, um, with you have your scripture journals, you'll be looking at chapter six with us this morning. If you have your Bible, or your apps, you'll be turning to chapter six. And of course, those of you if you downloaded the app, if you go to the Sunday mornings at Grace, and then there's a, a thing called notes. You can see, should you want, and that's something you want to take advantage of. You can see. Uh, sermon notes that are posted there as well. Of course, you can also just see the screen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is both beautiful, awesome, but it's a fearful thing. For in the awesomeness of it, we see you and all of your glory and your goodness. And it is splendid and spectacular and glorious and beautiful. But it also, what we see is our own frailty, our own sinfulness, our own weakness and brokenness, our selfishness, our sinfulness, the way we hurt others, the way we hurt ourselves. Our disregard for who you are. Our blatant rebellion towards you, our King. Most gloriously, we see within your word as well how you have brought us to yourself through Jesus Christ. So Father, enable us to hold these glorious tensions together that can only be held together in Christ this morning. As we look to your word, we pray for your spirit to guide our hearts and our eyes and our minds. Affecting not just our minds and what we think and what we believe, but our very hearts towards what we love. And we pray this now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. And as we look at our society and in our culture... I would say that we essentially are filled with a lot of anxiety, we're filled with a lot of angst, we're filled with a lot of desire for something else within us, both individually and even within our society, within our cultures. And so we find ourselves all the more fearful, all the more anxious, all the more depressed and discouraging. As I was thinking about this this morning, you know, there are three kind of tensions, three three things that we really desperately want, three realities we want to be true in our lives and in the lives of our children and the lives of our society. And what's amazing about these three realities is they almost seem to conflict against one another. One of the key realities that we desperately want in our society is to be accepted. We want to be accepted. We want to feel that in the midst of all of the brokenness that is Bo Sullivan and it is you and is the person sitting next to you is a desire to be accepted and received and loved. There is within us this deep, deep burning desire to be loved. But there's also this, this desire within us That is busting through the pipes that is transcendence and beauty. You see, in modernity, in in kind of the 20th century, we kind of, we try to disenchant the whole world, right? And we try to turn everything into evolutionary mechanisms that are taking place within there. And we try to say beauty is just a construct, a cultural construct within there. And it tried to restrain something, a, d- a deep truth that we all is know is true within us, this reality of transcendence, this reality of beauty. And we're seeing within our current culture that burst through the pipes as we long and we say, we need something beautiful. We long for something transcendent. We long for something that is bigger than us because we've seen how the culture has fed us that you are the most important thing, what you believe, who you are, all these various things, and we have found it deeply unsatisfying. So we long for this beauty and transcendence within there. But we also long for justice. Our society is one that is crying out for justice. Now, oftentimes we confuse what real justice is. We confuse who the real victims are within that. But at the end of the day, there is something deep-seated within us that is crying out for justice, that is crying to make things right. As we long for that. But the problem is, as we kind of fit all these things together, it seems like how can they wed together? How can all three of these longings that are deep within our hearts find their reality? They can find their satisfaction. Because especially... If we really take an honest look into ourselves and an honest look at what justice means, we find that those two of us being completely accepted and the reality of justice seems to conflict, seems to be at an impasse within one another. And so in the end, what we we end up doing in a society is we try to turn to different ideologies. We try to turn to different philosophies, and we move from one thing to the next, all the more dissatisfied, all the more anxious, all the more in the need to find something that satisfies. We can placate that for a while with our Netflix, with our music, with our news cable that, that fuels our outrage news. But eventually, it catches up with us. What I want to submit to you is all three of these longings this morning, we can find met together in the person of Jesus Christ, in the God of the Bible. And what I want us to see this morning is when we begin to take the Bible apart, and we begin to emphasize one of these longings above the other, what happens is we begin to lose sight of the glory of God, and what ends up taking place is all these other longings begun running in havoc. And so what we see quite clearly in 2 Samuel chapter 6 is it shows that when we lose sight of the glory of God, when we lose sight of the glory of God, ultimately what takes place is the community suffers. What do I mean by that? When we lose sight of a transcendent, holy, and perfect God, when we lose sight of it, what does it mean to know Him? Ultimately, what happens is this world becomes filled with that which is not God, which is ultimately sin and evil and brokenness. Now, Let's go ahead and move into the first few verses here at 2 Samuel chapter 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose, and he went with the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned into the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and brought it out on the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart and with the ark of God. And Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with the songs and the lyres and the harps and the tambourines and the castanets and the cymbals. And so what we see right here, just immediately reading this, is what we see is something glorious, something truly wonderful that seems to be taking place. It seems like a glorious and wonderful worship experience. Now, if you've been with us, because last year we went through 1 Samuel... Right? You may remember, oh wait a minute, I remember talking about God, I remember this man named Abinadab. Now you may be a little bit confused by the location, by Al-Judah, because it was called a different location in 1 Samuel. It's the same place. Kiriath-Jerim um, uh, was the place that was referred to in First Samuel uh, chapter 7. But if we remember the story of where the ark was left off, it was actually a pretty heartbreaking story. Because it was all part of God's punishment. You see, if you remember correctly, the priesthood in particular, Eli and his sons, were not leading the people well. And so God was bringing judgment upon Eli and his sons for their sinfulness. But what we see is they were in many ways were a microchasm of what was taking place within all of Israel. All of Israel was really being casual about the worship of God. And we saw, if you remember in those places... There was a strong play on the word glory, kavab, in the Hebrew that was taking place, which means weightiness. And if you remember correctly, what we saw is they were not making God weighty. And what they had done is they had turned the Ark of the Covenant into really more of a good luck charm. A way by which they could manipulate God and get what they wanted rather than a representation of God's presence, which means they were to submit themselves before God in the awesome weight and transcendence of who God was. And so what we saw then is there was this massive battle between the Philistines and Israel. And Israel got thumped. And so what they did is they brought the Ark of the Covenant out to say, hey, surely we've got God here on our side. God's going to do what we want him to do. And they got completely thumped. Again, and not only did they get thumped again, if I remember correctly, it was they lost thirty thousand men. So there's kind of a kind of a nice symmetry here between David sending thirty thousand to go get them, and when they initially lost the Ark of the Covenant, they lost thirty thousand to the Philistines. Now, what had happened is the Philistines took it back into their chief cities, and God just lowered the boom on them, so to speak. He just thumped them. And so what you saw is the, the Philistines moved the ark from one city to the next, and every time they moved it, death followed. And they, it became quite clear that God, the true living God, was the true God. And they, they just said, hey, we're going to send this, this ark out back to uh, the people of Israel. Now, what's significant about that is when they sent that out, they sent it out on a new cart. Just like what we saw here, it's easy for us to kind of gloss over that. But what you see here is when the people of Israel decided that they were going to move the ark from Baal Judah to the new capital city of Jerusalem, they essentially decided that they would follow the Philistine way of moving the ark, putting it on a new cart. Now, if you remember, when the Philistines had sent the, cart, had sent the ark back to the people of Judah, the people there... They were excited, but they offered improper worship. And so they began offering sacrifices that were against the way the Old Testament had called them to make sacrifices. They were very flippant and casual. They opened the ark. They weren't supposed to do that. And God smote them. And he showed them and said, look, this isn't what you're supposed to be doing. Now, rather than changing their ways and responding in proper worship what they ended up doing is saying, hey, we're going to stick it into this house of Abinadab and we're just going to just let it sit there. So it wasn't back where the tabernacle was, which was in Gibeon at that time. They just kind of left it there and it was there for decades. Decades. It was there just kind of an afterthought. And if we were to look at the parallel passage with what we have today in 1 Chronicles chapter 13... What it says is during all the reign of Saul, they just kind of ignored the ark. They didn't give any credence to it. They didn't look at it. They just kind of left it there within that. So it's good that David has decided to say, hey, look, let's let's acknowledge we're going to make the worship of the living God proper in the center. And so we're going to bring it to the capital city and and we're going to do this right. That's a good thing. But, notice how, once again, they decided to bring the ark. They decided to bring the ark on a new cart. Why are you making such a big deal with a new cart? Well, we'll see. And they came to a threshing floor at Nacon. And Uzzah put out his hand into the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen cart stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah in the place that was called Perez, Uzzah, and to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come in? And so David was not willing to take the ark of of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Odom edom and all his household. Now, what we see here is a couple of things. Now, you know, we can look at this and say, Hey, you know, God's being pretty cruel right here. I mean, after all. This, the, the, what we see here is a picture of they've, they've got this new card. It's being pulled. They come across a threshing floor, which would mean to be kind of uneven. There's this stone path. So what happens is it's jolting a little bit. And so the ark is, looks like it might stumble. So surely Uzzah is what he is doing is actually being respectful and reverent and showing reverence towards the ark of God. But this is where it is important that we understand the Word of God. We understand what God had actually said is how they were supposed to do things. You see, they were very excited. They were worshiping. They were doing... They had wonderful and great motivations, but they were worshiping out of ignorance. You see, because if they had looked into the Old Testament, particularly into Exodus chapter 25 and Numbers chapter 4... What you was seeing is God has specifically told them that they were not to carry the cart, the ark this way. They were supposed to carry it by making poles that they would use, and so there's loops in there, and so, and it was only Levites that were supposed to carry the ark. Because, once again, when you think about it, of course, if you're in a cart, things could become wobbly. You're supposed to carry it like this, and that way. You got four people on each side. You're not going to have this situation. And he warned them in Numbers chapter 4 in the way in telling them how they were supposed to carry it. Warned them that, hey, you know what? If you touch it, you're going to die. So what we see is despite all of their great enthusiasm and probably we can say good motivations within their They were worshiping out of ignorance and ultimately in disobedience, in direct defiance to the Scriptures, to God's revealed word of the way they were supposed to do things. Now, Uzzah died, but David really is the one who, and you see him, he's quite afraid, he's a little bit trembling, and frankly, he should be. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 17, it say specifically that the king is supposed to be reading the law, meditating the law, knowing the law, so that he can lead the people in the proper worship of God, so that they wouldn't do things like this. You see, what we see here is despite all of their enthusiasm, they were ultimately worshiping out of disobedience. And this becomes serious because what happens is in many ways, this becomes a very easy path for David to become just like Saul. Keep in mind what what happened with Saul. Saul, out of fear of the situation, he became, you know, decided rather than to follow God's law according to the letter of the law, according to the spirit of the law, what God told him, he said, you know what, I'll just do things on my own. I'll just follow what seems right in my own eyes within there which, of course, leads to ultimately death. And what this teaches us, dear friends, ultimately is this. Awe of God fuels true worshipful obedience. You see, this is where these two realities can come to play. Two of the three realities that we've seen. One of the realities that I talked about was our need and our hunger for transcendence, Something bigger than ourselves, and also the need for this world to operate in a way that it is not filled with the sin and the brokenness and the injustice that is in there. And we have all kinds of words for that, but the biblical word for this is sin. Right? And so David was filled with passion, but ultimately also. Void of understanding within there. You see, why is this so important? Why is God such a stickler within this? The reason is is we need to understand worship is two things. Does two things. Number one, worship is a response. You know, whenever I hire a new uh, worship pastor, like when I hired uh, Joseph, and we were interviewing people, one of the things I, I, I uh, first things I ask people, I ask them, what is the gospel? But I also ask, well, what is worship within there? And we need to understand what is worship. First of all, worship is a response. In other words, it is a response to the grace that God has done for us. It is a response to God's grace goes first. So that's one of the reasons why we have two things that we, we are very intentional about here at Grace Covenant Church in our worship service. One is we really want to be intentional so that whenever you walk into this place, you know that you are welcomed within there. And that's, that's that sense that, to know that no matter how much you have messed up throughout this week, no matter how much shame you feel, no matter how um, lowly, how unworthy you feel, you are welcomed into this place. And that isn't because of who you are. And so each of you are equally welcomed here. Equally, not one of you is more welcomed because of the car you drove into this lot. You're each welcomed equally because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the second thing we're very intentional to do that you saw this morning, as you see each and every morning, is that God's word goes first. God gets the first word in everything we do. Everything we do after that is a response to God speaking first. That's what worship is. It's a response to what God has already done. But the other thing that is important to understand in worship is worship is not just a response, but worship ultimately forms us. Worship ultimately forms us. And so when you see in the Old Testament and you look at these passages in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and even in the passages that we see that we often don't talk about in the New Testament that talks about the way we respond to God, so often we like to think of worship in the sense of the songs we sing, but worship is actually much bigger than that. Worship is our whole life response to God. But why does God give us so many specifics of the way this needs to look like? One is, the biggest reason is because our worship forms us. Our worship forms us. And if what we worship, we become. What we worship, we become. What you, what you worship, what becomes right before you, you will become. And so, what God is teaching in the Old Testament people and ultimately teaching us as well is the way and the patterns and the rhythms of our life will point us in one direction or the other. This world is forming us in one way or another. The question is are we being formed by the Word of God or are we being formed by the liturgies and the truth and the ways of this world? And so, you see that quite clearly taught. In Romans chapter 12, when Paul calls his people, in light of the rich theology of grace, that is Romans uh, 1 through 11, therefore to, to, be, uh, to present our bodies as living sacrifices, our whole bodies. In other words, all that we are as living sacrifices. And he calls us not to then, in the next verse, to not to be conformed into the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Why? Because it's the understanding that our worship, in that response to who God is, ultimately continues to form us and shape us. It moves us into a direction. It will point us towards a holy, beautiful, transcendent God, or it'll ultimately turn us into something that ever so subtly becomes more about us, about our passion, about our enthusiasm about how we feel. Now, all these things are good things, and I'm going to talk about that here in a little bit. But in worship, in that response to God, is important that we keep our worship upon God because it forms us, and what we worship, we become within there. Any attempts to bypass and take control of worship to form it into what we want rather than what God wants, ultimately, Usurps God's sovereignty, it usurps His goodness, and it turns God into our servant instead of the proper way of us being God's servant. Now let me be clear, we're never God's servant. God, <laughs> I mean, excuse me, God is never our servant. but we act and we move in such a way. And that's not good for us. That is not good for us at all. Now, we rightfully emphasize grace and the welcome of God, but we must also keep the awe of God—that transcendent part of Him—completely forefront. The fierce holiness of God is ultimately good for our souls. I remember the first time I came on a ski trip to see the mountains, and in that ski trip, and we were driving up, and I was in high school. And listen, folks, I'm from Oklahoma, right? So this is like a mountain to me. It's like just that, you know, it's, I'm used to flat, right? And so we're driving up, and this kind of dates me a little bit. I was playing a Game Boy, not like some new Game Boy 3DS, the original Game Boy, okay? And so I was looking in there, and a friend of mine pointed me and said, look, man, don't be looking at that Game Boy. Look at the mountains. And I looked up at the mountains, and I was awed. And you know what happened in that moment? I can't tell you what happened to that Game Boy the rest of that trip. My eyes were transfixed as I saw something so transcendent, so much greater than Bill Gates or Nintendo could ever produce. When we keep our eyes and we see God in all of his glory and goodness, we see something that this world can't compete with something that truly can satisfy our souls and the deep longing of our heart. God is good, and we see that goodness, but as C.S. Lewis illustrated in his wonderful children's books in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's good, but that doesn't mean that he's safe. He's good, but he's not safe. And there's lots of the most important things In this world are good and powerful and needy, but they're not safe. Electricity isn't safe. Nuclear power isn't safe. But when used properly, they're good. And when we see God in all of his goodness and his glory, what happens is it doesn't cause us to retreat from him, but amazingly to move towards him. But we move towards him understanding who we are. And that is the best place we can be, to understand who he is and who we are. I remember uh, the very first time, again, I'm from Oklahoma, so you have to forgive this illustration. The first time I shot a gun, right? And so it was a shotgun. And it was a single-gauge, 12-gauge shotgun. Now, this single-gauge, 12-gauge shotgun did not have what's called a recoil pad. Now, if you don't know guns or shotguns or anything like this, let me me just break this down for you. So this was a big gun. I was a small kid, and it really hurt, okay? That thing pounded on me, and I had a nice bruise. I can't remember if I stayed upright or not. It may have knocked me on my knee. I don't remember. But here's the thing. I grew an awe and a respect of guns at that point. I knew I can't just be playful with guns. If I'm with a gun, whether somebody has it or I have it, I have to respect the awesome power of that gun within there, right? This is in a very imperfect way, helps us understand the goodness and the glory, the transcendence of God. Isaiah, as he, in Isaiah chapter 6, as he enters into the throne room of God, all he can say is, Woe is me! I am undone, as we see the transcendence of God. But what that does is that can come at us like, why would we want that? Because in seeing that, what it does is it strips away all of our pride. It strips away everything that would make us feel that we can stand before this God in our own power, in our own might, and it makes us all the more aware of grace And that just brings his glory and his wonder even higher into his most glorious wonder. It's just, we become awestruck. I hit another octave there when I said that, right? (laughs) It's amazing. Because when we see that, we realize who are we that we could stand in his presence? Who are we? And it begins to strip away. And when we see him and his glory and his goodness, his love becomes all the more pouring out of us because we realize who are we that we should receive this love? You know what the response of that is? Worship. See how it cycles? Walt Brueggemann, Old Testament scholar, said this when people are no longer awed, respectful, or fearful of God's holiness, the community is put at risk. When we see the people became less awed about God, less fearful about God, what happened? People died. Now, this is important because keep in mind, who were the first audience of Samuel? Remember, they were there wasn't a 1 Samuel and a second Samuel. It was just all one scroll together. The first audience was the exiles. What had happened that caused them to become an exile? It wasn't that they just stopped worshiping God. The temple was there. They were offering sacrifices to God. But they were having God plus other things. God plus this other God or God plus... Economic development or God, plus getting ourselves a name or riches. And what had happened in that? Not only were they ignoring God, but they were filling the land with injustice and misery, political injustice, social injustice, spiritual injustice within there. Cries from the weak, the hurting rampant. And as we have seen within our own world, when we lose our sight of God, and we can look and we can talk about a nation, you know what? And, and, and it's certainly, we can see that. But let's talk about ourselves. Let's see about the effects of ourselves when we have lost sight of God. The effects that happens on our family, on our kids, on our spouses. It's not pretty. Now, we need to understand this before I move forward. Not all tragedy, tragedy is because of disobedience, okay? that I'm not saying that in any ways. But God often uses his discipline out of love to capture us, to say, Hey, you guys have lost your first love. And the effects of that is brokenness. The effects of sin is death and brokenness that takes place. But when we encounter God, it puts to death our idols, but ultimately brings resurrection. There's been many ministries, many pastors. Many missionaries, and I say with this with trepidation, because I know. In five years, this could be me. This could be me. If I lose my sight of God. But their ministries have become wrecked, churches have become wrecked, pastors have become wrecked. Because they've put their ministry, the growth of their churches, their platform, their success above obedience to god they've lost sight of god and in many ways a lot of times what happens is they view that god needs them more than they need god and the response is well you see it in the church pastors who become bullies pastors who become abusers you see sex scandals you see financial scandals within that all these various things And you see a church that simply empties itself of its power because we become more about finding our success than encountering a transcendent living God. We can look and we can bash those other churches or those ministries or those people or those politicians. But what that should call us to do is to come back and say, God, examine me and know my ways. See if there be any grievous say within me and lead me into the path of righteousness. One of the things, though, that we need to understand is our enemy is a great judo fighter. Now, I say this, and I'm borrowing this illustration from another scholar, J.I. Packer. Admittedly, I'm not an expert on martial arts, so I may be misusing this here. But from what I understand, within judos, there's a way that it's not just about attacking, but taking the thrust and the attacks of the other and kind of using it against them. And our enemy is really good at doing that really good at thinking and using some of the thrust that we use to follow God and twist it and turn it against us. And what that usually looks like is in our efforts to obey God, we become prideful. We begin to find our identity in the obedience in what we have done rather than in the living God himself within there. And so what we see is pride creates a false reverence that is man-centered rather than God-centered. And so and this is easy because we can see this in some of our worship wars, right? We can see people and we become judgmental and we can begin looking down upon other people on the way they do things and elevating ourselves above others because we you know, have the right lingo or the right language. We listen to the right podcasts. We read the right books within there. That's the way this often looks. Now, you might say, what does this have to do with the passage? Well, hear me out. Because we're going to be introduced to a character we haven't seen in a little bit, and we haven't really given her due, and that's Micah, the very first wife of David. Now, this is one of those instances where I was planning on going in one direction in the sermon, and as I studied it, I had to change it up. Because I admit, my heart breaks for Micah. My heart breaks for her. She looks like she has been used as a tool by powerful men to just, for politics. My heart breaks for her. And what we've seen, and this has been subtle, we've seen that though David has been following after God, he's been allowing himself to become lax. And you're you're beginning, you've begun to see kind of fruits of sin that have become seeds that have become planted that's going to cause all kinds of disruptions later on, right? And that, we've seen these subtle things that have become indictments where he's been adding more and more wives to him. So my heart breaks for her, and I was wanting to go one direction that was pretty hard on David within here, but the text really kind of corrected me as I began studying within that. So as we look at verse 16, we're reintroduced to Micah, Michael, Uh, who was Saul's daughter and David's first wife. Here's what it says. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now, a few things jump at us as we read the text. One of the first things is at first, it doesn't identify her as David's first wife, But as Saul's daughter, and then it says she despised him in her heart. That is a really strong language. And it really, it was the first time it was used, goes all the way back to Goliath, despising David in his heart within there. And so what you see is a deep bitterness and anger within there. Now, well, we'll just keep moving on. And they brought the ark of the Lord, and they set it in the place inside the tent that David had pinched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, and, and he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts, and distributed among the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meal and, uh, excuse me, of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then the people departed, each to his house, and David returns and he blesses his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of servants, female servants, and as one of the vulgar fellows who shamelessly uncovers himself. And so what we see here is David has been leaping, he's wearing, he's and this is important to kind of help understand the argument. He has taken off his kingly robes, which would be more formal, more grand, more cultured. And what he's done is he's put on an ephod, which is a priestly garment within there. Um, it's not going to be nearly as formal, not nearly as grand within there. And so what's, what we see here is her response, it just drips with sarcasm, right? Sarcasm is not you know, unique to your family, Sarcasm was going on all the way back then, right? And so it drifts with sarcasm. Now, when we read her response, it's easy for us to say, okay, well, there's some jealousy here. Apparently, you know, when we first read it in our context, we assume that David was being vulgar. He was being almost pornographic, that there must have been something going on there. But that's really not necessarily what was going on. In fact, what you see when you read the text, what really had her upset wasn't what David had done. Now, it doesn't say that he had completely uncovered himself, but just that the way he had done it was inappropriate in her eyes. And she was expecting him to, to be more like a kingly regard within there. And he had removed his kingly robes within there. And so when it talks about uncover, it may have just been that, you know, he'd shown up to his knee or something like that which in her mind would have been vulgar for a king to to do that or show within there. And so what is driving her is not jealousy of female servants in the way David is acting um, lewdly towards other women, but rather she feels he is embarrassing himself as one who should be far more dignified before as a king, Right? And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all of his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel to the people of the Lord. What is he saying? He said, look, God appointed me. This isn't your dad's not king. And the way he ruled isn't going to be the way I'm going to rule. And ultimately, this isn't because I became powerful But ultimately, I am in my position because God put me there. And he says, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. So in other words, he's saying, look, you think I have humbled myself? That I'm acting like this great king that everybody should look to and be impressed with? I'm going to show myself even more unworthy of my station. Even more unworthy of being this king because of who God is. And I will be abased in your eyes. But the female servants of whom you have spoken. By them I shall be held in honor. And Michael the daughter of Saul had no children that day until the day of her death. Now, very harsh. We don't know what was going on. Was that a divine... Uh, injunction from the Lord basically to to protect the the lineage of David so that there wouldn't be a a lineage of Saul that would come in or is that just the fact that they became so detested by one another they they never got together anymore we don't really know but either way what you see is one who has separated herself in bitterness and saying this is about pride This is about you not doing things that make me uncomfortable within there. But What was David's response? David's response was a confidence and a joy in grace. It's saying, look, I don't deserve. You you want me to play like like I'm this one who deserves being king? I fit this image of this king that everybody should want to be just like? No, I don't deserve this position. And I'm going to make sure that everybody knows I don't deserve it. I'm going to show you who the true king is, the true one that we need to be looking at. The one, we don't need to be looking at, at, at the king. We don't need to be looking at the preacher. We don't need to be looking at so and so. We need to be looking to God. We need to be looking to Jesus within there. That's the one we need to see, that's the one we need to hold up. Ultimately, what it is is a rejection of pride because it's so easy for us in our desire to be obedient, to, to look and cast an image of ourselves, and to find an identity in the way we are acting or in our acts of obedience that we do this. Look, what we do as Grace Covenant Church versus so-and-so down the street We say, no, we are what we are by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will celebrate that. Who are we? Who are we? A God of grace enables us to participate in the awesome response of worship. You see, the grace of a living God, the grace of the transcendent one is the only one who can hold all three of these longings I mentioned at first together. You see, we talked about that longing for transcendence and justice, and we can see how they fit together. But how does this longing to be loved fit together? It seems like it shouldn't work because we know I don't deserve it. But when this transcendent, glorious God is able to provide a way of his love, then all three of these longings can fit together in glorious harmony. Verse 12. We're backing up here a little bit. And it was told King David, the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom, which, by the way, that's a foreigner. It had been left with a foreigner for three months. Um, because of the ark, uh, uh, and all that belongs to him, because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of God had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David, with all the house of Israel, brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the shouts of men. You see, what does this begin with? It begins with God's grace. It begins that despite the fact that the children of Israel had messed up yet again in the way that they were working with the ark, you begin to see God's grace is right there. It begins and it is saturated with the grace and the favor of the living God upon a people that don't deserve it. And that's what fuels this worship. That what enables them to respond. And, and this becomes a little bit more clear in the parallel passage in Chronicles because what you see is in there is they made sure and they said, okay, we're only going to have the Levites carry it with poles. So in other words, As they were rebuked by God, as God disciplined them, their response was change, was obedience. It was repentance. It was a repentance that led to them responding to God affirmatively. Right? But it still filled them with worship and passion. They still were able to feel like they could move towards God because God was a God of grace. We saw that he was blessing right off the bat, even though they were messing up. But even the ark itself, the ark itself was a giant billboard that says, God is gracious and loving. The ark was a sign of all of God's covenant faithfulness, that he was a God who sought to live and be with his people A fact that this transcendent, all-holy God who is so perfect that we cannot even begin to approach him from our sinfulness, but yet in a plan of his redemption would come and make himself dwell amongst his people. And so for us, friends, what that shows us is this glorious truth, is all these longings of our heart are brought together in Jesus Christ. As Jesus Christ, the, the second person of the living God, eternally dwelt among us. As he took upon himself the wrath of God upon all the injustice. So he was struck so that we would not be struck. But he conquered death. And in his resurrection, he offers us his life, his resurrection power. We see this in its glorious, glorious wonder and what we're about to do today in communion. Communion, of course, is a representation of what Christ did for us on the cross. The cup represents his blood, which was spilt for us, given for us for the remission sin. The bread represents his body, which was given for us. Now, if you've been around church for a while, maybe you grew up in a tradition that communion was a kind of a frightful thing. It was for me. It's always dangerous when you try to remember things from your childhood because you always get them out of whack. But I only remember doing communion one time a year, about once a year. And I remember in the tradition we were in, it was so um, elevated that, hey, what you're about to do is such a holy thing that if you take this in any unworthy manner and it wasn't explained what an unworthy manner was, you could die. And so I became deeply afraid of taking communion, scared of it, absolutely. Now, here's the thing. What we're about to do is remarkably holy. It is representing a fellowship with living God that is absolutely holy. And we, the Bible does warn us not to take it in a manner unworthy. And, you know, there's some times, and we take this once a month, I'll come to the table And the Holy Spirit will bring to my mind various sins within me. It'll bring to my mind maybe someone in the congregation that I'm struggling to love or maybe somebody outside the church that I'm struggling to love. And I'll think to myself, how can I come take this table? But it is in that place that we have the opportunity to take the table in its most glorious way. Because, you see, if I were to, to avoid the table, then I would be setting in my shame. Now, there's a way we could take it unworthy. If we could say, hey, you know what? This doesn't really matter. Fellowshipping with Jesus, it's not that big of a deal. I'm more about me. Or if we looked and said, you know what? God is calling me. He is hitting me on this sin in my area. And you know what? I don't really care. Or he is is talking to me about how I am not loving this other person. But you know what? I would rather keep hold of my anger and my hatred towards this person rather than forgive them. These are all ways that are unworthy. But if I look at all these sins and all this horror, my my sinful heart, my inability to love even though I've been loved, and I look and say, woe is me. Finding a savior, then I am in the right place to take communion, because I look to say, who and where, who can save me? How can I be saved? And I can say that one person is Jesus Christ, who shed His blood and gave His body. And for me to love in obedience, there's only way for one way for that to happen and is that through the grace of the Lord Jesus working itself in me, as Christ unites, my, unites me to Himself. So I'd invite you this morning. I know we're running late. But this is a place for us to stop. And in this place of communion, encounter these realities. A transcendent holy God who has made a way for you to receive incredible love and grace through Jesus Christ. To be changed by him. To a place of obedience. This act does not save you. Only faith in Christ saves you. I don't call you to look and to receive. There is grace and mercy that comes from a transcendent God this morning. Now, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're you're just on the fence about Jesus Christ, I would ask, or you just don't believe. I would ask that you not partake of this meal. Instead, I would ask that you receive Christ this morning, by as your Savior by faith. Receive Him, and then come and talk to me. And next time, receive the elements. But for all those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to come and submit your lives before Him and receive His grace and His mercy this morning. Won't you pray, Father? We need Your grace and Your mercy. We need your love. Who are we that we should receive it? In your holiness and your transcendence, we all deserve to be struck down. But yet, in your mercy, you move towards us with love and hope. We cannot earn this love. There's not any acts that we can do to save ourselves. But thank you, Lord, that you provided Jesus to save us. So lead us, Lord into this time, and may we fully embrace the wonder of who you are today. In Jesus' name, amen. There's four communion stations, two in the front, two in the back. There are these cups that are pre-sealed. Those are gluten-free for those who may need gluten-free options. We encourage you to come, take the elements, go back to your seats, and then we'll all partake of them together. Come, the grace of God for the people of God.
1: sing with us. I cast my mind to Calvary. I cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see
0: which our Lord was betrayed he took a meal a covenant meal Passover meal and he showed his disciples its true meaning and how it brought it to him what he would do for them on the cross dying for their sins defeating death ultimately leading to his resurrection as he's with his disciples he broke the bread and he gave it to him and he said this is my body given for you We take this now in obedience to him. In the same manner, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the remission of sins. We drink this now in obedience to him. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for Christ who came for us to save us when we can never save ourselves. There is no hope apart from what Christ has done. And we thank you for that hope. In Jesus' name we pray.